Good evening to all of you. Namaste. I'm happy to meet you in this first satsang of our season of this year. And um, this starts as a special event because tonight we also have the Yang Spiral and uh, we have to be finished by 9.30, 9.45. So this actually, our very first satsang in this season is a short one, is a half satsang. Our satsangs usually take about two hours. And uh, the meaning of the word satsang is the company of the sages. Like in India, when you went to an ashram, when you went to a spiritual place, people would always wonder when is there satsang? When does the guru of that school or of that ashram give darshan? And that means it's a custom in India, and we apply it here in uh, Agama, that at least once a week there should be a connection between the teachers, the senior teachers of the school and the pupils under the form of the satsang. And uh, these satsangs are open to everybody. They are open even to people who are not participating in our courses. They are the interface between the school and the world. They are free. We try as much as possible to film them or to record them audio so that they are available online. So actually many of the satsangs of the previous years are already available in the Agama channel and on the Agama site. And uh, the downside of this phenomenon is that, of course, I would feel inspired every year especially because many of you are new or semi-new, maybe some of you came in the half of the previous year, in the second half of the previous year, and then you didn't hear some fundamental things like these. And uh, therefore, I liked very much for a few years before to start the year with a lecture of what is the Tantric Yoga, because that's what we do in Agama. It's a school of Kundalini, of Laya, of Hatha, and generally of Shakti Yoga, of Tantric Yoga. And that's special, that differs from the main trend and from the many of the classical forms of yoga that creates some specificities in the way you study yoga and the atmosphere, the energy which exists in Agama. And at the same time, um, I wanted, I always did a second lecture, which was, would be called, what is Agama Yoga? Agama Yoga being a school of Tantric Yogas, of different types of Tantric Yoga, has still a specific structure because of the initiations that we have inherited in this school. From Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga to the ten Mahavidyas and other Shakti Tantric practices and crowning with Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, there is a whole range of technologies which describe what can you hope to achieve, what can you hope to learn in a place like Agama Yoga. 
I have, however, decided not to start again with those lectures, simply for the fact that at least two versions of those lectures exist already uploaded on the Internet, and I would just be repeating the same lecture again and uploading it again as an, a new version of it. Um, in this age of information and of digital technology, therefore, I will um, recommend that you go, you download those files, you listen to them. They are important, that's why I used to do them in the beginning of the season, because they tell you of what is happening, how it is happening, what is the structure, what is the backbone of Agama Yoga, how do you ascend, and which are the different possibilities. And so I decided not to go into what is Tantric Yoga and what is Agama Yoga. Um, I, however, decided to start, especially given that it's a shorter lecture, this one, a shorter satsang, I uh, decided to give a brief presentation of some uh, metaphysical principles in yoga, of some, of some yoga and metaphysics, for a variety of reasons. First of all, metaphysics is the great loss the great lost item in modern yoga. When modern yoga has become a fitness industry and many other similar things, one of the things which got lost between the fingers in simplifying yoga, which is unfortunately not just a simplification, it's a bastardization of yoga actually. <coughs> and while the ancient yoga <coughs> was and still is as a matter of principle a quest for the truth for the truth with a capital T this metaphysics has been easily sacrificed it's also because the highest principles of this universe when we analyze the structure of the universe the ultimate reality is unfortunately something very difficult to discern it is something which is present here and now, right in front of your eyes. And at the same time, it's like the parable which says that people are looking, but they are not seeing. It's exactly a little bit, if you want a more modern technology analogy, it's like those 3D stereogram printouts which appeared some 20 years ago in a lot of magazines and brochures and books, where if you don't know how to look at it, you actually don't see anything but just a mixture of dots and points and weird shapes, while in the moment when you see it, out of that chaos, out, the, out of that apparent chaos, there emerges a coherent image which looks 3D. Exactly in the same way, the mystics of all times tell to us that it's paradoxical that the highest principles which are giving us the metaphysics, they are actually right under our noses, we live into them, we are like a fish living in the water and not seeing the water, not realizing that it lives in water, exactly as some people would say that this hole, this yoga hole is most of it empty, while physically, scientifically speaking, we'd say no, it's full of air, yeah, but air is so common and we live 
in air, we move through air that we don't feel. We, we call air emptiness, empty space. However, strictly speaking, it's not empty. In the same way, even if you go between two galaxies in the cosmic void, there you are living in God. You are in the cosmic consciousness still. Cosmic consciousness is everywhere and it's impossible not to interfere with it. And yet people don't see it and people doubt the existence of a cosmic consciousness because they don't have a practical experience or a practical interference with this reality. And uh, because of this, it's very, very easy to lose the metaphysical part of life and of yoga, precisely because the metaphysical part of life is related with this great principle. There is an Arabian proverb which says, if you want to trace your path straight, like you are a traveler and you travel, and you want to trace your path straight, not to find yourself wobbling. In those days, they didn't have a compass. So how, do you, how did they sail straight? Either on the ocean or on a desert of sand, made of sand, by the stars. So they simply said, if you want to trace your path straight, attach your chariot to a star. Imagine that your chariot would be tied to a star. Then you could follow a straight line. But a star is far, far away. Usually everybody attaches their chariot to a donkey. And the donkey can go like this. This is what we do in life. We go like this. We lose our straight path. It's like we don't have a goal. We don't know that we want to go somewhere. And because of this, it's very important for spiritual people. It's very important when you search for yourself to live by the principles. Some very wise men and some very wise women in the past, they have had their crown chakra and their third eye open, and because of this they saw those principles, they perceived those principles, they understood those principles, and they wrote them down, some of them at least, and they communicated them to the next generation. And when the student in the next generation hears about the principles, he says, yeah, my guru Ramakrishna says so. But honestly, I don't know, because I am not as advanced as my guru is, and I haven't seen, I haven't felt all that thing. And that's why for many people these principles are theoretical, that's why we call it metaphysical. For some people, metaphysical is a word which is akin to philosophical, theoretical. But for Shankaracharya and for Milarepa and for Patanjali and for the Buddha, these were not theoretical things. These were things which they could experience, they could see, and that's why they lived their lives by these principles. And that's why when they leave these principles, these principles seem annoying for the people who don't see the principle. Because they say, why? Why go that way? Because there is a star that way and your chariot is attached to that star. 
but your mind is clouded and you don't see that star. And that's why you have to follow in the footsteps of somebody who saw behind the clouds, who saw beyond the clouds. That's why I'm happy to start this year with focusing in a short lecture tonight on the principles which are coming together with yoga, because yoga is more than just bending your body, stretching, breathing in a certain way. All those things are aligned with a star. All those things come from a much deeper principle. And unfortunately, when yoga was transformed into gymnastics and superficial healing and other things, then those principles were sacrificed. They were not included in the package, like they were not needed. And I'm happy to start with the principles, talk to you a little bit about the principles which are working here in Agama, which is a school that has preserved the metaphysical essence of yoga, uh, because fortunately, by a good planning of the year, we are starting this very first cycle of teaching in this year with a very metaphysical workshop. No later than next week, the school is having the metaphysical workshop where you can deepen these things through practices, with the appropriate practices, with very inspiring examples and quotes and uh, presentations made by great yogis of the 19th and 20th century who spoke the modern language of the spiritual seekers of these days. And um, in a certain way, I hope that what you'll hear tonight will warm you up towards studying the metaphysical workshop sooner or later. Because one of our advanced teachers who said, maybe you should start yoga, people who come to Agama, maybe they should first start not with the first level, but they should start with a metaphysical workshop. Like that should be at the beginning of everything. And uh, like if you didn't do that, you understand, you don't understand half of what yoga is and what is happening. So many people consider this metaphysical workshop an uh, extraordinary complement, a very necessary complement to the study of yoga. And remember that although I seem to imply that, living with principles, by principles, is not something which is relevant or required only for spiritual yoga, because as you know from the very first lecture, the What is Yoga lecture, there are several purposes of yoga. There are several headlines in yoga. And some people can say, why is uh, Swamiji talking about, uh, uh, you know, metaphysical principles of yoga? I am here to learn just some of things about yoga and health. The human being is a holographic, holistic, structure. Our body is a mandala or a yantra of a higher reality, which is our mind and our spirit. And because of this, even when we talk about healing, sometimes it's not enough to just put some energy in a chakra or like mechanically to, to just learn the healing that in every asana it's written that this one is good for the hips and for the lungs and for the liver. It's more than that because the human being has a soul. The human being has emotions. The human being has a mind. And the human being is 
a pure spiritual reality at the upper end of that scale. And it was Hippocrates, one of the fathers of the Greek medicine, who said, you cannot heal the body without healing the soul. You cannot heal the soul without healing the mind and without healing the spiritual essence. He meant it in the fact that sometimes some diseases are of a spiritual nature. For example, the Ayurvedic doctors of India, they say that certain severe mental diseases, as well as some apparently incurable diseases for their days, like leprosy was one of them, the lepers were the outcasts, one of the outcasts of the primitive societies, not only in India, but all over the world, that these are karmic diseases which move from a life to another life. Like if you die with leprosy, you will have leprosy in your next life again. It will continue. It's something related with the problem of your spirit. And the, the way to heal such diseases is that you have to forgive yourself, is that you have to make peace with God, that you have to make peace with the universe, that when you have such a disease, it's a disease of the soul, not only of the body. That's why you cannot only heal the body because you do some padahastasana and some talasana and you put the right energy in the right chakras. The revolution which occurs in the human being is a revolution which goes on multiple levels, which happens on multiple planes. And that's why even when you heal, you have to think carefully about how you heal the soul, how you heal the spirit. I have had people who were in healing in Agama and under hypnosis, they went to hypnotherapy and they were asked in, when they were in a state of deep hypnosis, do you, want to, do you actually want to become healthy? And under hypnosis, they answered no. no. Then how do you heal such a person? It's easy that we speak about yoga and healing. And you say, well, I, I'm not interested in all this hocus-pocus with spirit and so on. I just, but you cannot become a proper healer without reaching the soul and the spirit. Because the root of some problems of the human being are there. And the human being is not easy and not simple. It's a holistic structure and everything is connected with everything. Some people say, I want to study yoga just because I want to apply it in my daily life. I want more vitality, more energy, more power of concentration. I just want yoga to be the perfect instrument which helps me to live my life in a nice way. But even there, there are holistic principles. What is the meaning of life? Where does life go eventually? Am I going to use the principles of yoga to produce abortions or to shoot people sharp and clearly. It's like, no, I know that I can use yoga to influence my daily life. But the question is, what is my daily life? Where does my daily life go? No, yoga is an instrument, but it's exactly like I put a big engine on a boat, but I don't know where I want to get with that boat. A big engine on a boat that has no direction will serve pretty much nothing. It can actually create more trouble, a real strong engine on a boat with no helm and no direction. And um, 
even if somebody is interested in the paranormal principles of yoga, as we divide yoga in the What is Yoga lecture, that some people are interested in the paranormal phenomena. Even in the world of the paranormal phenomena, there can be a great confusion. No, I was recently meeting some person who was endowed with a partial form of clairvoyance, which allowed that person to see spirits, to be in contact with them, and that person who achieved a level which other people would work 10 years of yoga to open up to that, that person was not happy. That person was not happy and had a sad life, considered himself or herself persecuted by this for the very simple reason that there was no direction. That came too early. Like even if you do 10 years of yoga or 5 years of yoga and you open some part of your third eye and you start seeing invisible forces of nature, spirits, entities, other people's auras, the colors of the telluric streams emanating from the earth and other things, that doesn't mean anything as in terms of a successful life as long as you have not attached your chariot to a star. Because still living without principles, healing without principles, it's still producing a great confusion and it cannot go to the greatest level. Even one of the greatest clairvoyants, clairvoyant people that the 20th century has known, and I'm talking about the Dutch uh, clairvoyant called Gerard Croisset. Gerard Croisset, when he was interviewed, because he had an incredible level of clairvoyance, he helped the police to find disappeared people. You know, he could just close his eyes and find people disappeared in the middle of nowhere, drowned, gone, whatever. It's a long story. I'm not going there right now. And when they asked him, how do you perceive, how does your mind seems to know everything? And he says, it's true that I have access to this sphere of the mind where I, I can tap into the universal knowledge. But he said, I clearly feel that above my mind, like my mind is like a sphere, my gigantic mind, the, the collective mind is like a sphere, and above it there is another reality even more wonderful. But he said, I know clearly that I yet I don't have access to that reality. Like this man was so clairvoyant and so knowledgeable, and his life was sad. He, his life was pretty chaotic. He needed lots of help from lots of people. He was quite helpless and confused in many ways. And at least he had the lucidity that he knew there is a sphere of existence. And he meant Sahasrara. He meant the crown chakra. There is a sphere where if I would have access there, then I would be in the kingdom of heaven. You know, then I would be in paradise. Then I would be home. But he realized, he had the lucidity to realize that as insightful as his mind was, he was not able to get there. So, principles are required in any kind of interest of yoga. Even the people who learn therapeutic yoga and others, they are taught principles. The principles are invisible. 
the principles seem to be very intellectual or mystical or metaphysical and abstract. But these are the principles which guide us. And yoga is built on this scaffold. Tantra, tantori, means a warp. Like before there is a piece of cloth on a, on a loom, there is a warp. And then on that warp, you are weaving that cloth. You see the cloth, but you don't see the warp which sustains it. And that warp, those are the principles. And if you want to know more about this, to have a clear picture of the universe, which will improve your yoga practice like tenfold, once in your time, may even don't have time next week, like whenever it is offered, go and see the metaphysical workshop. Because there, these things, in 36 hours of teaching, they are taken into great detail. And, of course, there are many other effects to yoga, but they are collaterals. When the Greek philosophers discovered the yogis of India, together with Alexander the Great, 300 years before Christ, a bunch of Greeks reached India as a retinue, of Alexander the Great. And of course, some of the people which they met in India at that time were yogis. They were yogis 23 centuries ago in India already. And the Greeks were very smart. The philosophers of Greeks who tried to say, who are these weirdos who live in the jungle or wherever and what are they doing? They understood pretty well. They understood more than this monkey yoga understands today. This monkey yoga understands then what Greek philosophers understood 23 centuries ago. They called the yogis of India gymnosophists. Gymnasts and philosophists. Gymnastic philosophers. Like, to be a yogi is not only to bend over. You have to be a philosopher. What is philosophy? It's the love of wisdom. So, how many people who bend over are in love with wisdom. Who wants to become wiser? Who would say, I want to do yoga for 10 years, and what I expect besides a fit body, and besides flexible legs and hip joints and so on, and besides maybe having pranic energy in my hands, so I'm capable to heal with it, what I expect in 10 years of yoga is that I become philosophically wiser that I love philosophy, that I love wisdom, that I become a wise man or a wise woman. If I have done 10 years of yoga and I remain foolish, and I mean strictly foolish, I'm not using the word foolish like a sweet endearing word, that hey, even great spirits can play foolish sometimes. I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about grown-up people who are really, really foolish and wasting their lives, then it means I haven't really done yoga. Because when I do yoga, that yoga is a love of wisdom. I am in search for wisdom. Imagine you being much wiser than you are. How does it look in the future? Create the vision of you 10 years from now, when you would have done yoga every day, and you became fit, good-looking, this, that, powerful in your prana, and wise. 
in love with wisdom, a real wise you in the future. If you are smoking marijuana today, are you wise? Everybody knows that the answer is no. Because marijuana doesn't make wisdom. Tobacco doesn't make wisdom. Alcohol doesn't make wisdom. A lot of things don't make wisdom. And of course, people are people's own worst enemies. We shoot ourselves in the foot ceaselessly. We sabotage ourselves. Why? Because we are not wise. And people even dismiss it. Hey, we want me to be wise all the time. I can't be wise all the time. Hey, you can't and so on. But Jesus was. And Shivananda was. And Mahananda Mai and St. Teresa of Avila were. So it's possible. It's humanly possible. The fact that we dismiss it is just a cowardice. It's just an act of cowardice where we say, Hey, what do you expect me? I expect you what Jesus said. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. Copy God. Oh, it can't be perfect. Yeah, you are telling to Jesus that his advice is bad. It's not. We all know that that's not a bad advice. But we all know that because we are not wise, we live our life foolishly. We live our lives. So yoga has to be this quest for Wisdom, this love of wisdom. It's not only gymnastics, it's philosophy. It's a gymnastics with philosophy. And this being said, I am trying to go with you in the little time which we have, just as, a, just as talking to your subconscious mind, because the list here, if I would want to go into details over it, and perhaps I shall do it next week, taking them one by one, but again, I don't need to go there because we have a workshop, a whole workshop in metaphysics. We look at the wisdom of yoga and I'm trying to outline for you how understanding the structure of the universe, the structure of reality, how it is possible to understand some of these principles. Because there is a warp which we don't see. That's, the, well, that's what Tantra basically says. That everything is connected with everything. That your Manipura Chakra is connected to the sun. And if the sun has a flare, oh, it's an eye for an eye. And that it was a Manipura philosophy. And Socrates was born in this philosophy and he lived in it. And he had to fight. Maybe he killed people. And then when this necessary atrocity, because it's an atrocity anyway, even if it's legitimate defense, it's still not nice. It's still terrible. It's still bloody. You know? And he, when this was over, Socrates went on a field in front of the, on the plains in front of the walls of Athens. And there he looked at the setting sun and he stayed in what we yogis would call Trataka, in a standing position. And he watched the sun slowly setting down. And he stood like this the whole night looking into the darkness until the sun raised again in the opposite side and came again. Almost 24 hours, Socrates stood with his eyes open and did a sort of a prayer, a blessing, a meditation, 
working perhaps on Ajna Chakra and burning the karma of the city, because that city, although wonderful in the eyes of its inhabitants, it still had killed people to defend itself, and that was not nice. It can never be nice. And Socrates did this, and my teacher said, how do you explain this action and this power of Socrates if there is no spirit? I didn't understand. I thought, well, he was just a stubborn old dude, you know. He just had a huge stubbornness and willpower, and maybe he was sorry he killed people, and he stood there and like, mm, what the heck did we do? And, and he, had, he had, like, why would the fact that a stubborn old man would stand and look into the horizon for 12 hours or 16 hours, why would it prove that there is spirit? How can you make that conjecture that this is coming from spirit? Because it didn't. I being in the way in which I was now, I could ascribe this to just a great mental power. The man was just standing there and thinking about his sins or whatever, you know. Why does that prove anything about spirit? Today I understand that the attitude of Socrates was coming from his connection with a spiritual reality. But in those days I could not understand. And that's why... There have been people like Milarepa who conquered the universe. Milarepa, the humble Milarepa, says when I reach this level, I could go from the top of the paradise to the bottom of hell. I could materialize in any universe and loka of the universe I wanted. I could witness the existential condition of anything from an atom to the immortal God. I could do whatever I wanted in this universe declares Milarepa when he reached a certain level of practice. And the humble Milarepa who did this is poisoned. He died poisoned by an idiot. He was poisoned by somebody and he even refused to use his enormous yogic powers to kill the poison. There is a Dutchman today who has a very strong Manipura, I think he's called Wim Hof if I remember, He's going in ice-cold water up till here, and he stays three hours in an ice-cold water without his body temperature dropping, because he does TUMO. He performs the Tibetan technology of TUMO, and other few great feats. And recently he showed his Manipura is so big, he started doing things a la Rasputin, a la the Russian Rasputin thing. They inject poison and all sorts of other substances in his bloodstream, which is like you have no defense directly in the bloodstream and he describes how the poison goes through his body and how he isolates it with his willpower and then he pisses it off or whatever he does and it doesn't affect him. No, There are people like, if Wim Hof can do this, you can imagine that Milarepa could do this ten times more than Wim Hof. And yet Milarepa swallows a poison and he is poisoned by an idiot. If, if anybody would have had the conclusion this man can walk on water and can move the universe on his little finger. I'm not ever going to try to poison such a man. Because it's like you are trying to fight with, I don't know, you're trying to fight with the greatest force in this universe. You know, it's like complete madness. And yet somebody dared to do that. Because even in Tibet, even with Milarepa, who spent 40 years in a cave doing yoga, there were still people who looked at Milarepa and they said, yeah, mm, 
And what's so special about this dude? Tomorrow, I'm going to poison the asshole. You know? It's like, Jesus was crucified. And he even told on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Like, they don't know who is on the cross. They don't realize what they are doing. If they would know, they would squeal like beaten puppies and run in circles. You know, they don't realize what abomination they do. There was a king who did four attempts to kill Buddha, the peaceful Buddha, the lovely Buddha. There was a king who got irritated by Buddha. He said, what is this prophet, this new prophet doing around here? He's just pissing, I'm the king. You know, what is this man doing? He has too much authority, too much charisma, and he's passing through my kingdom a little bit too often. And he tried to kill him. There were attempts on the life of Buddha. With a mad elephant, they sent a furious elephant to stampede him and so on. So people, did, people saw Buddha and they did not say, well, this man is in touch with the ultimate reality. Buddha could not demonstrate, you should not send an elephant against me because I am connected with the supreme reality. Jesus could not tell to everybody, stop these stupid thoughts about crucifying me. Because I'm God in a human body. You are not, you are you idiots. No. Milarepa could not stop a jerk from administering him poison, telling him, I have the power to make your dick the size of an atom and then send you to hell. Like you, 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 you know, how, how would you dare to raise your hand against Milarepa or against Jesus or when you know who they are? The funny thing is that the people who did this, and it happened in every generation, were people who couldn't even fathom this. They said, there is no God. There is no Buddha nature. There is no supreme reality. There is no karma. There is no Shambhala. There are no consequences. These guys are somehow having a fake reputation. They are cheaters. They are selling illusions, whatever. Maybe they are deluded people. They think that they have reached something. And to demonstrate that it is not so, I'm going to crucify them. I'm going to send an elephant on them. I'm going to poison them. I'm going to do this or that. Like people, it's, it's almost impossible to convince people about the essence of the essence. In the middle of the wheel of the universe, there exists a universal consciousness, an ultimate reality, which is here, now, in front of your eyes. When you look at every atom, words which don't engage them. You know, if you say, may God give you everything you want, then you imagine an old man which is demanding and vengeful and fearful and has a white beard and whatever, then you can't relate to that. You consider it a very childish image of this, Anuttara of this ultimate unsurpassed consciousness. But every spirituality and every philosophy, even materialistic, and they say, well, this is a materialistic Greek philosopher said, this is a world of change, change, change. Like the only eternal thing is change. Then it means you call God change. And what does it matter, what you call it? Basically, everybody says, when you go to the top of the scale, when you boil everything down to one, when everything is left into oneness, 
that oneness we call it, void, spirit, Atman, everything, and it still represents something which our minds cannot grasp anymore, because our minds are built of neural cells, of neurons, which work like a computer on the principles of zero and one. It's true that if there is any brain scientist among you, the brain doesn't 100% work on a zero and one, but it still works with electric impulses, which give open and closed signals and similar things. It's a more grayscale than zero and one, but still the principle is that we are working on a principle of change. Mind is built with two brain hemispheres, which give us the masculine and the feminine aspect of the mind, the yang and the yin, and the yang and the yin are the pl like the plus and the minus, they could be compared with the zero and one in digital technology of today. And in this way, we generate everything. And how can zero and one understand no numbers? Something which is neither zero nor one, but which is beyond numbers. They cannot. In a similar way, our mind, which is built in the way it is built, it cannot understand. People have never ever been able to express this ultimate reality. And that's why approximately 30% of the population of the world is made of atheists, plus a number of rationalists, agnostics, and others. Because people sincerely, they say that if you are not endowed with this special intuition, and when I use the word intuition, I mean divine intuition, not the Vishuddha Chakra, intuitive type of intuition as you learn in the Agama courses but I'm talking about the word intuition like the word that some people like a Jesus and an Abhinava Gupta they somehow swear by the existence of this divine consciousness and you can tell them can you demonstrate it they cannot they consider it obvious when my first spiritual teacher I was 16 years old and I lived in a communist country and my parents had educated me as an atheist. And when my first spiritual teacher mentioned passingly the word spirit, which was a forbidden word like in communist society, you know, because spirit was considered to be the, one of the symptoms of the decadent capitalistic society, and religion and all, and you know, Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the masses, and people are just uh, deluding themselves with religion instead of fighting the capitalists or something like this. And thus the religion became one of the enemies of the Marxism and or different forms of materialism. And when I heard the word spirit, I got shuddered, you know, because like this man had crossed the line. And of course I wanted somebody to cross the line, but, and I kind of, I didn't dare to hope that it could be there. And I asked him, I remember my voice was almost shuddering. You know, I, I, I hardly dared to ask the question. And I asked him, but is there spirit? Like spirit does actually exist? You know, because I've been told in school and in family, that the word spirit represents some sort of figment of some people's imagination. That it's a complete nonsense. And now you are telling me about spirit like about it's something which matters. And again, the word spirit in the language where I come from 
doesn't have the dual meaning which it has in English. Because in English, spirit is a word which also means uh, mind, the esprit de corps, and spirit defense, and spirit of the law, and other things. So the word spirit is a multifaceted word in English. But in Romanian, where I came from, spirit meant just the spirit. It meant just like the essence of the divine. And I asked as it is, and... My teacher, for whom the matter was clear at that time, he was 80 years old and he was an experienced spiritualist, I still remember it was like a volcano erupted through his face. Like he got transfigured a little bit. It was like the scene which is described in the Bible when Jesus started shining light from his face and people almost got afraid to look at him because something amazing was present there. And he said, like, you know, what a naive child you are. It's like, he, he said, of course there is spirit. You know, it's like, but he said it like, I can see it, I can experience it, and I don't know really how I could convey it to you. And then he explained, he conveyed it to me by an example which for years and years I did not understand. He thought he was eloquent. But I didn't understand because I didn't have his experience. I respected his opinion because I was learning from him. But it had not yet become my experience. He told me a wild story from the Greek uh, antiquity. He was very fond of Greek culture, speaking old Greek, writing in old Greek and so on. And many other of these heavy ancient languages, Latin and all the rest. And... Um, he told me a story when Socrates, the great philosopher and the great sage himself, when Socrates had to fight in a battle and implicitly maybe to kill people, defending Athens from barbarian invasion. He was a citizen of Athens. He had to do his citizen job to the city and together with all the other men and women from the city, he had to fight like a soldier because his city was about to be burned down, destroyed by a barbarian invasion. And he thought, we don't know if he killed somebody or not. But when this act of necessary atrocity, like, okay, maybe it would have been Jesus, Jesus would have said, we should all be crucified, and we should be like sacrificial lambs, and we should turn the other cheek. But the Greeks were not living by the philosophy of Jesus in those days. It was more like the Manipuristic philosophy that if somebody slaps you, you slap them back, you know. Solar flares, which is an astronomical phenomenon which happens now and then, your Manipura chakra will react. It's possible that the sun has a disharmony, a wobble, and then people become more violent and aggressive for a few days. Like, you are not separate. When the sun tremors, shudders, you shudder as well. There is this proverb, this other proverb, which says if you cut a blade of grass, a thread of grass, the whole universe shudders. Because even a blade of grass is connected to the universe. Your Manipura Chakra is connected to the sun. And everything is connected with everything. And that is the Tantori, the Tantra, the web, that we are in the middle of a web of interconnectedness in a sort of a holographic universe. And that's why, without understanding those principles, we don't have a map of the universe. 
we don't know in what sort of universe we live. And it all starts with what we call neutrally in Agama, in yoga in general, with the ultimate reality. The Kashmiri Shaivists, they have called it Anuttara. Uttara means highest. And Anuttara, it means there is nothing higher than it. It will be expressed in English by the word supreme, unsurpassed, ultimate. This Anuttara or ultimate is the fulcrum of everything. It was, I think, Archimedes, the Greek philosopher and inventor, who said, give me a fulcrum and I can move the universe from its hinges. Because when you study the universe, you see that it's a world of change, 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 change. Either you study it as more primitive cultures did, or you study it as uh, uh, astronomers and physicists do today, we see that we live in a universe in which galaxies and everything implode, explode, move, run, distance or collapse into each other. It's a world of extreme change and that in a billion years the map of the universe will look totally different because things have moved meanwhile considerably. And in all these movement, 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 everybody is asking themselves where is the fulcrum? It's like a crazy wheel that spins. But even the craziest wheel that spins, it has a hub. It has a center. It has a point in the center of it which doesn't spin and doesn't move. So where is that central point? In all the reality, in our inconstant and transient lives, what is constant? Even if you think metaphysically that you reincarnate in 10,000 lifetimes and now you are a man, now you are a woman, now you are tall, now you are short, now you are strong, now you are weak, now you are virtuous and now you are vice-ridden and all that, where is the fulcrum? Where is the midpoint in all this madness? Because as long as we don't have this fulcrum, we cannot anchor. We are like a straw in a wild flow of water. We get carried by the water and it seems to be unstoppable. But if we find one fixed point, then we can hook to that. We can cling to that and suddenly everything gets another meaning. This fulcrum in yoga, there is no yoga when the yogis conceived the word yoga to unite with this fulcrum, with this central reality. It all starts from this idea, which is the source of confusion and argument so much on earth, that there exists an ultimate reality. Either you want to understand it rationally and scientifically, that there are energies over energies over energies, higher frequencies, energies, and so on, and planes of the universe, and then on top of all this, we reach to a point where everything like a top of a pyramid, everything is boiled down, boiled down, boiled down, boiled down, until it reaches to the extreme simplicity, until it reaches to oneness. And that oneness in terms of the universe, of our lives, would mean that all the energies which are, because in yoga we think that everything is a matter of energy, that in all these energies there is eventually one 
fundamental energy. Even a scientist like Albert Einstein realized that you cannot talk about the energies of the universe, gravitation and electromagnetism and whatever other nuclear forces there are in the universe, without realizing that all of them must have emerged from a single one. That on the top of the energy chain, so to call it, there must be a mother of all. And thus, in yoga, sometimes our beginners who try to think rationally through their Western education, they all, they realize, I can understand that there is, there is a sort of quintessence, a sort of fifth element, a sort of an energy which is the mother of all energies, like the Sanskrit alchemists called it Akasha, the fifth element, or like in the West they call it the ether, and that this ether is omnipresent and everywhere, that there must exist an energy which is simply the support of all the other energies, that every energy is like floating on the surface of a mother energy. And that one energy, that ultimate energy, would represent in a certain way the ultimate reality, the supreme reality. And the fact that some people call that ultimate energy consciousness, that that's what creates consciousness, that's what reflects in the human being as consciousness, or that we can call it a permanent essence, or like in the Indian philosophy, that we can call it Atma or Atman, the Supreme Self, or that we can call it like Buddha did call it, the Void, Shunyata, or that we can call it the Buddha Nature, or we can call it the Absolute, like in the Greek philosophy, that it is the Absolute with a capital A, or we can call it... Uh, the Dharmakaya, like another Buddhist terminology, or that we can call it Brahman, which means the Absolute in Vedantic philosophy, again, or that we can call it Nirvana, or that we can call it the Infinite, or that we can call it Life, or whatever we call it. No, people say, may life give you whatever you wish. Who is this life? I had a lot of fun with it, by the way, when I lived in Denmark, because life is a Danish name, it's the name of a man. There are guys called life, and whenever we said, may life give you everything you want, it meant that particular dude. It was like, may Walter give you whatever you want. No, what is this life? Why do people use Obli from this universe? You see the body of that universal consciousness. We are in it, and it is in us. It's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. It's a reality which exists everywhere beyond space, beyond time, beyond individual personality. It's the one force of this universe. The funny thing is that this fundamental reality, some people only have the intuition. When you think about it, when I talk about it, something vibrates in your heart. Sometimes you are about to burst into tears because your intuition, we have the organ, we have the Atman, we have the soul in ourselves and our soul, like a tuning fork, resonates to the big tuning fork. And when you are put in contact with it, there comes a reaction and then people say, why do you have that reaction? And then you say, I don't know, it's like an intuition, it's like a nostalgia, 
it's like, you know, I can't explain why, but for me, this thing is that way. And for other people, because of their evolutionary level and because of their karma, this resonance is not there. You talk to them about Jesus and Milarepa, and if Jesus and Milarepa would be here, they would crucify them the second time, and they would poison them the second time, because they don't have a feeling for these things. That intuition does not exist. And if you ask people, demonstrate, what can you demonstrate? That Jesus was walking on water? But walking on water is a siddhi. It's quoted in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra as mastery over the water element. If you master the water element totally, which is a big, big metaphysical statement, it means you, won't, you, you can never be swallowed or drowned by water. You can even float on water in a paranormal way. You control any of the functions of water in any way you want. Then you can walk on water. That's the ultimate manifestation of controlling the water element 100%. It's a city. But if somebody controls the water element, it doesn't mean that there is God. There is no logical connection between somebody being powerful and controlling. I can walk into the fire without the fire burning me. That's just a physical process. It means you've got an energy which allows you to annihilate the burning power of Tejastatva or the fire. Why does that demonstrate that there is a God and that you have seen that God? It doesn't. Not even Jesus, not even Milarepa, not even Shankaracharya and Buddha, they cannot demonstrate this. This supreme reality is one and because it's beyond the mind and beyond alternatives, beyond polar energies, this supreme reality is mysterious. When Jesus speaks about this reality, which he calls the kingdom of heaven, he speaks in parables. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a fisherman that has thrown a net, a fishing net, and in that fishing net he catches a great valuable pearl. And then he throws everything else and he sticks to that pearl. It's a sacred parable coming from Jesus, but I can make a lot of fun of it, because it's bullshit. In the meaning that it means nothing. That if I tell you that the king, the, the ultimate reality is like a fisherman throwing a net and he keeps that pearl, it's like, right, you know, out of respect for Jesus, we will swallow it in silence. But it's like, honest to God, if you put me in front of a mirror, I'll say, what is the nonsense which this guy was trying to say? Like, I don't understand, because Jesus cannot explain the kingdom of heaven rationally, logically. There is no way, when Milarepa came out of Samadhi, he wrote verses, he wrote short poems. And he wrote in his life a hundred thousand verses. Every time when he came out of Samadhi, he kept writing some verses, in which he said, like Ramakrishna, you know, I wish... I could tell you where I have been and what I have seen. It's that ultimate thing which cannot be... I have experienced it. I have seen it with my own eyes. But unfortunately, I can't describe it to you. Ramakrishna tried to tell what's happening when his Kundalini went to Sahasrara. 
and he couldn't even describe what's happening when Kundalini got to Ajna. Once he made terrible efforts, and he said when Kundalini is reaching here, then there is only a thin veil separating Atman from Paramatman, the individual self, from the universal self, and then one enters in Samadhi. And then, then he was gone. And he tried to cross that bridge ten times, and he couldn't. And then he started crying, and he said, I'm sorry, Kali, for him he was a devotee of Kali, and he's that Indian black goddess, and he said, I'm sorry, Kali simply forbids me to tell you what it is. But what he meant to say, it is not humanly possible. Language cannot express it. The brain cannot fathom it. It's not a concept which belongs to the manifestation, to Prakriti. It's something which belongs to the other side. This is the pure spirit, the transcendental part. And this part is the beginning of yoga. Because, of course, many people say, Swami, we can't believe in such a thing. We, the only thing to do is the experiment. Only the practice. That's why Shiva Samhita and other fundamental texts, they say there is no other way than practice. Practice, 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 until. Until. You cannot cross that bridge with somebody telling you about it. Again, Jesus spoke in parables. Milarepa wrote poems. Others, Rumi wrote poems. Even Paramahamsa Yogananda wrote poems. Some of the Zen masters in Japan, in Zazen and others, they expressed it as koan. What is the sound of, this is the sound of two hands clapping. What's the sound of one hand clapping? That's precisely a question which takes you to Satori, to Nirvana, because the answer, there is no answer. It's a totally absurd question. And that's why, because the mind has to stop and one has to experience that without the mind, beyond the mind. Even Ramakrishna, he could not, he could not describe that reality. And he, again, he said, he tried to express a lot of things about the supreme reality. And he said, there is no word that ever has defiled Brahman. Like he said, Nobody has ever managed to say one accurate word about the Supreme Reality. But the spiritual people who are blessed with this intuition, maybe they are souls that have grown a bit more mature in the chain of reincarnation. Uh, it's late already, I'll stop. The Supreme, the, the higher souls, they have a sort of an intuition. Like, I can't tell you why, but I just know that it's there. It's, they asked Swami Vivekananda of India, he started his yoga practice, his tantra and spiritual Vedantic practice as a rationalist. He was an atheist. The, the disciple of Ramakrishna was an atheist. And he even considered that Ramakrishna is deranged mentally because he could not explain his mystical outburst except in this way. And then one day he got exasperated and he told to Ramakrishna, what is this God that you keep talking about, like, can you see it or what? Because as a rationalist, as a, as a Capricorn, as a Muladharistic Capricorn, utilitarian, he wanted something to touch and to see. 
And he said, what is this God you keep talking? Can you see it? And Ramakrishna looked into his eyes and told him, I can see God better than I can see you right now. That's the supreme principle in yoga. That's what the gymnosophists, that's the philosophy which the gymnosophists were trying to reach. That we live in a world where there seems to be no fulcrum and no stability. Everything seems to change, 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 and be transient, impermanent. We die, others are born. Maybe there is reincarnation, maybe there isn't reincarnation. Even that one is hard to prove, and so on. And in this world of change, 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 is there something stable psychologically, emotionally, spiritually? We would hope and we would wish that there is one, there is something which is the fulcrum of the universe. That fulcrum of the universe, the Kashmirian Shaivas have called it the Shiva consciousness, and that is the ultimate, the Anuttara, the Supreme. And the incredible thing is that this Supreme Reality has not been demonstrated, because it's impossible, even by Buddha and Jesus and Krishna and others. Even Krishna got shot by a, another idiot with a bow. You know, like, how can you shoot Krishna? How can you crucify Jesus? How can you send an elephant to stamp, to stomp over Buddha? How can you poison Milarepa? Because there is an amount of people who are incapable to perceive this for the time being. The yogis of Tibet say, let them live another 500 lifetimes in human bodies and their perception will refine. They will grow up and somehow this Atman, this spiritual organ that we have in us, it will ripen and it will start giving them intuition. That's why those of you who have this spiritual intuition, you're not crazy. It's just a function of the evolution of the human being. It shows that in a certain way, your tuning fork is receiving signals from the tuning fork of the universal consciousness. My friend Sahajananda calls it the tremor of the heart, that your heart shudders, you know, like you, you know that there is something and if somebody asks you, you just run away, you turn away, you say, I can't explain, please leave me alone. It's something so intimate, so private, so essential, and you know that you can't have words for it. That is why, to conclude this introduction for you, in the principle, this is the capital principle, the greatest principle, that we are trying to find this Atman. We try to find this spirit, because without it, our life has no center. We are just like a straw on the waters of the universe. We are just carried chaotically by a universe which moves, moves, moves. And then it seems to have no meaning. But it has a meaning if you manage to find the center. Once you find the center, you see that this universal river is not chaotic. It spins around the center. There is a hub of the universe which holds everything together. And that's why our, the spiritual part of yoga, but even in healing and governing your daily life and others, the essential thing is this 
intuition is this practice yoga until you start opening an intuition about what the reality of your being is. What is the void? What is the Buddha nature? What is Atman equal Brahman? What is spirit? What is the supreme consciousness? That's just the first thing that we talk, and that is essential. And again, I'm saying we know, it's a known fact, that some people are weaker in that intuition. Sometimes a man like Jesus can awaken it like a sun that is shining and it gives warmth to everybody around. When you are in the presence of such a person, people feel awakened slightly. You remember, those of you who remember Gospels, that they were trying to stone a woman who was an adulterous woman and the punishment in the Jewish culture was to stone her publicly to death. And they ask Jesus because they want to nail him. They used her as an instrument to nail him. And they want to say, let's see now if you can tell us not to do the stoning. Because Moses told us to do the stoning. And Jesus doesn't want to completely contradict the previous prophet. And then he strikes them. Then he, then he explodes. There is a nuclear explosion in his heart. And everybody gets this sun radiance like from his Atman, because Jesus tells them, maybe Moses was right, you know, but he says, let the one of you who has no sin cast the first stone. Nobody dared. There was no crucifixion and there was no poisoning of Milarepa, because in that moment Jesus did like this in his spirit, and everybody was like, and when you look from that point, everybody realized, what am I talking, I'm going to kill this poor woman, who am I, you know? I'm full of misery in my life and now I am arrogating to myself the right to be a judge and an executioner. Are you kidding me, you know? Everybody became humble and modest and suddenly aware, centered in their self. So, this is what we hope that the practice of yoga does for you. Either we talk about healing or improving your life or dealing with paranormal phenomena such as clairvoyance and astral projection, or if you directly are interested in finding yourself, this is where it all starts. This is the number one principle in yoga. Mm -hmm. After that, we start coming at the things which make it possible and which I'm not going to comment tonight. Because, for example, the thing which makes everything possible is our beloved Shakti, which is the counterpart of the consciousness of the universe, and which simply we call her, by the generic name, energy. Without the mother energy of this universe, nothing would be possible, nothing would happen. So, that's why there are many principles. You'll have the joy of hearing some of the principles of spiritual life and practice in the metaphysical workshop. Tonight I will conclude, because we have a synchronized meditation, which should, should start in one minute, but it won't start in one minute. It will start in 10, 12, 15 minutes, depending how quick we manage to organize, because it's also full moon, and this is the Agama way of celebrating full moon, which brings so much energy in your Svadhisthana chakras, and it's good or bad for your emotions. If your emotions are healthy, then they get stronger healthy emotions, and if your emotions are traumatic and not so healthy, then the full moon makes it worse 
because it amplifies what is already there. So our answer is to do Yang Spirals, a meditation which counteracts to the yin energy of the moon with the yang energy of the yang spiral, and at the same time it produces a powerful sublimation. So instead of just getting overwhelmed by your svadhisthanas, you move the energy into ajna and sahasrara. And that is a much more simple than you expect meditation, and our organizers will try to organize it now in 10-15 minutes so that we can do it in time. That's why let's conclude here. Thank you all for having had the patience to listen to my parables about the inexpressible. And uh, in those of you who are interested to taste the Young Spiral if you never tasted one or to repeat it if you have done it already, please give all the support to the organizers. You'll need to stand on rows there so that we can make the spiral as quick as possible. Thank you all for joining and see you in the next weeks in the continuation of the dialogues, the satsangs about the higher principles of yoga.